Kia ora koutou whanau. Welcome back to another Department of Conversation. Uh, remember, you can always check us out on our Facebook page. Facebook's a good place to find us because it kind of has the links to everywhere else. So facebook.com forward slash D-E-P-T of Conversation, Department of Conversation. Um, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify for the audio feeds. Uh, best place to find our video feeds because all of these get broadcast live in video form are on that Facebook page. Also some links there to the YouTube channel as well, especially if you want to see our beautiful faces in HD, except for Jace because he hides behind the screens. All right, well, this week, uh, if you're someone who's looking to be motivated or you've had motivation issues in the past, Dr. Dr. Matt Jenkins is your guy. Uh, he did a PhD in motivation and behavioural uh, management, behavioural changes, and uh, he's uh, in to have a chat with us about all sorts of stuff, including things like uh, the easiest way to stay motivated and stay on track with your goals. Dr. Matt Jenkins. You hear the sound in our ears. That means as I look to Jace for the thumbs to go up, we are live. Dr. Matt Jenkins, Hi. Hey Pat, how thanks you for coming in. No worries, man. Um, we were just talking, and, and we might just finish this conversation. Jace was involved as well about concerts that uh, people would be surprised you might have been to. Uh, Jace, you had a few good ones. What were your ones? Uh, I managed to get free tickets to a. Uh, I was going to say Hoobastank, but they're probably just a bit. Uh, what are the? What did I say? Nickelback. That's it. You have Nickelback. to say free. Say free tickets because who would even pay <laughs> yeah, for tickets to Nickelback? Yeah, and we sat at the back and laughed. Uh, but also got you know the Who. I think that's pretty good. That's that, pretty good. Yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah, one. And uh, that, Rage Against the Machine. Um, only a few years ago, back at the yeah, day that was a big day out. Saw that. I was and, my uh, one. The rest of them are pretty standard. I've seen the Food Fighters many times, and the Muse, <laughs> and all the other, and Coldplay, and all that sort of jazz. But uh, but yeah, Rage Against the Machine and the Who are my are my like my my calling card concerts. That so I've my to. one, my big one's Ramstein. That's uh, it, well, even though it was a big day out one, so that means that another sixty thousand people probably saw them as well from New Zealand. But still, Ramstein's a pretty uh, pretty rare one. I saw Michael Jackson at uh, back oh, really? in the day. Yeah, where was that? Oh, that would be good. There's Western Springs in Auckland. It's funny. It's like I went to I went to Michael Jackson because um, I thought about my parents and I thought about my parents in the sixties if they could have seen the Beatles, and they didn't. You know, yeah, to, right. this, to that day, they would have been. I could have seen the Beatles, yeah. and I didn't. So, I mean, I liked Michael Jackson, especially in the eighties. He was he was cool. You know, it was I was a fan. Yeah. as a kid, um, but it really was this. This is a yeah. You can't. Well, how can you miss it? This is like you know, it's the yeah, Beatles, it's Elvis. Was my first tape, man, black and white. Tape, was my first tape. Tapes, I remember tapes. So there yeah. was like you know, if you could see Elvis, wouldn't you have wanted to see him? These things. And Michael Jackson is in that vein. Is yeah. there, I mean, I don't know if there's anyone today who's like that. Who you? I mean, I guess everyone needs to see you two at some stage. They're probably. Have you seen you two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, good life. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're okay. from the UK. But I mean, I mean, I, I always think about people in the UK. Everyone must have been to the O2 at some stage. Yeah, or Wembley and I seen mean, something. I was I brought up I guess in the the nineties, so I had a lot of Britpop stuff, and it was mainly Oasis. Oasis, big, Oasis. Come into the mic a little bit there, bro. Yeah. Um, so I remember going we'll to see Wembley, toward, for example. Just drag the mic towards your face. There you go. Is that better? That yeah, is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Oasis is a big one. The weirdest one I've been to, I think, was actually here in Dunedin. That was Robbie Williams. Ah. And that's only because we got free tickets, like. Jason. <laughs> um, you got to put disclaimer in A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to, man. Um, Turns out that one of my friends from school, his cousin, was in the band who Rob Williams. Oh, wow. And he didn't know anyone in Dunedin. He had these comp tickets, so he offered us these tickets. And I was like, yeah, well, it's not really my thing, but I'll go. Yeah. And I was actually, I've got to say, I was blown away by it. it. I mean, the entertainment value, he knew what he was doing. And even though I was reluctant to get involved, like in terms of being entertained, he, he, he 
Throw us all away, man. It's really Come good. on, tell us which songs you sang along to. All of them. That's the yeah. thing. He's, they're all catchy and he's easy pop to hits. dance to. Yeah, yeah. I saw Robbie Williams in Auckland when I was working for More FM. He came to New Zealand, and his first ever concert here was a private screening to like five hundred people. Oh yeah, and I went to that, and there was this big hubbub at the moment. At that time, he had just started to get a tattoo on his upper arm. Yeah, and it was a Maori yeah, tattoo. Maori tattoo. Yeah, I sat next to the guy in the thing who did the tattoo, so I got the whole story. It was pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah, so that was pretty cool because there was only five hundred of us, and so it was like quite like intimate. Yeah. yeah. Well, ish, you know, it's not like twenty, but you know. Anyway, so that's 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 we you know, talk about concerts. I guess that's not why you're here, but that's the conversation yeah, I, flows. Yeah, I'm into music, so yeah, that's good. <laughs> now, um, you are someone who I found in the ODT the other mm. day. Um, are someone who uh, has a PhD? Did you just graduate with the PhD? Did you just finish the PhD? Oh, it's been a year, over a year now. So I finished it in mid 2017. And so it's, it's been 18 at, months at Otago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing that fascinates me is it's in motivation mm-hmm. and behavioural change. Yeah, specifically. Is that a fair, a fair yeah, synopsis? Um, specifically for exercise, physical activity. Yeah. I like to use the word physical, the term physical activity as opposed to exercise. I think exercise has these connotations about, you know, going to a gym and working out, but physical activity means all these different things that you can do, go outside, going for a walk and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's what my PhD was in motivation, uh, and also looking at mindfulness as well. I'm not right. sure if that came across in the article, but it was looking at the effects of mindfulness on motivation. So when I think about mindfulness, I think about an app with nice music and words. It's weird, isn't it, that we've taken to using apps to create mindfulness, where it's probably f- smartphones that are taking quite a lot of mindfulness from us in the first place. There is a juxtaposition there, indeed. There is. There is. Yeah. But they are useful. I mean, I used the app Headspace, for example, in my research. Um, and it's really useful to, it, it makes it accessible, mm-hmm. you know, makes these things accessible. Um, but yeah, I mean, talking about mindfulness, what, how do you define mindfulness? How do you think you define it? Well, I mean, I haven't really been involved with it, but I know that my kids for a long time, they were having trouble getting to sleep at night. Yeah. So we found these mindfulness apps and it was, you know, da-da-da, yeah, it's a bubble, blow the bubble away. And it was like very nice, yeah, yeah. Like, like a meditation almost, I would yeah. think of mindfulness. That's essentially what it is. Yeah. I mean, meditation's a route to, to mindfulness and um, there's lots of different ways you can do it. And like I said, whenever I've talked about it to guys, I remember doing, I did a focus group a couple of years ago uh, and it was to a room of sort of rugby fan yep. big guys. Yep. And I remember bringing up the idea of mindfulness with these, with these guys. And there's, there seems to be a certain stigma attached to it. Like you think that you're going to be sitting in a lotus position with incense burning, like sort of doing the whole um, thing. But it's, for me, it's not. For some people it is. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's just about trying to be in touch with what you're thinking, what you're feeling at that time. So you don't I, have to be. I, I, I associate mindfulness with... Uh, relaxation, meditation, maybe introspection, yeah, um, and like peace and quiet. So yeah. I mean, not that I mean, you, you, not that you've put me on the spot, but never having spoken that out before, their words like I'm because I'm thinking about the you know the iPad playing and what the kids are listening to when they're doing it. Those are the words that come to mind. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because for me, obviously, I had to research for a PhD, right? So I had to define what mindfulness was, mm. and I think it took me about six months just to get to a clear definition because you look at all these research articles and the word mindfulness means so many different things to different people. Right. And everyone can take it on and, and use it in their own way. It's fine. Um, but to come up with an academic 
definition of mindfulness was an absolute nightmare. And have you nutshelled that into a few words, or is an academic definition of mindfulness like a three-page dissertation? No, I think you can you can break it down into a couple of sentences. Um, I mean, the key aspect is present moment awareness. Mm-hmm. So it's awareness of thoughts, feelings. So being in the moment in that time. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I think of it as a flexible attention to the present moment. So obviously if we're walking around in the present moment the whole time, we're probably not going to get much done. Mm. Um, but you need to have a, you need to be aware of what's happened in the past because otherwise we don't learn from our mistakes and all that sort of stuff. You also need to have a flexible attention to the future because otherwise we're not going to work on our goals, for example, like mm-hmm. the long-term stuff. But it's just when people get caught up in future predictions or get caught up in past experiences rather than actually um, focus on the present moment when they when it's adaptive and when it's useful to them. So it's being able to bring attention when it's useful, when it's adaptive, if that makes sense. So what's the difference? It sounds like you're talking about living in the now. Yeah. On some, on, or feeling the now. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting because, I mean, I think about, you know, things you get told as a kid or... Um, practices that good board in place and like one of the sayings that comes to mind about living in the now is you know it's a cricket saying you know you play each ball on its merits yeah like so what's the difference between perhaps when I say what's the difference how have we evolved or how has society changed to this mindfulness living in the now and perhaps my perhaps my dad's generation which are like just focus on today and and, and like then is there a difference or is this just the modern version of play each ball on its merits I guess it's the modern version it seems like we've had to pay more attention to this mindfulness thing because there are so many other distractions out there at the moment. So, you know, we're not evolved, I don't think, to be able to... We can get news from the other side of the world now and there's just this information overload. And in a heartbeat. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll probably look right now, there's probably a headline on my phone, right? Oh, there's not. The one, the one time <laughs> there's not, but you know. Yeah, but that's it though, right? Like, we're not... I don't think we're evolved to be able to cope with all these different things coming from different sides of the world and... Mm. It is an information overload. It's really easy to get overwhelmed. So I think that's where mindfulness is really important. Right. And it's not a new practice. It's been going around for, I mean, thousands and thousands of years in different forms. Yeah. Um, and yeah, straight through for history, people have been taking time out and reflecting. It's not nothing new. It's just that now it's been, I guess it's been uh, cultivated in these, you know, like I said, apps and things like that. It's almost commodified to a certain extent. So at what point did mindfulness come away from, if it has done so, maybe it hasn't, but like um, maybe when I was a kid and growing up through my teens and 20s, you thought about meditation as sort of an Eastern philosophy, mm. mysticism. You thought of it as some kooky religion from, you know, parts of the sub, sub-Asian area or Asia in general, whereas now it feels like this kind of meditation is very much mainstream, for want of a better word, and yeah. it doesn't have any affiliation with that sort of Eastern mysticism at all. It's funny because it, when you say it doesn't have any affiliation, people like, you know, the Headspace app, right? Or have you? No of it. Yeah. So it's, I mean, that's, that's really the app that's brought it to the masses. And if you look online on YouTube, they've got these fantastic um, animation videos of describing what meditation is and what mm-hmm. mindfulness is and all this sort of. But uh, Andy Puddicombe, who's the founder of Headspace, he developed this app in the first place. He actually lived in Tibet as a monk for 15 years. Right. So he's sort of taken that Eastern philosophy and, made it um, accessible and, I guess, more tangible for, for the, the populations in, in the Western world. I think that's, it's, it's a really good thing to do for what, you know, what he's done because I've been practising it for, for, like I said, thousands of years. So does that mean uh, still sort of it's had, it has its base, has its roots in those philosophies, almost repackaged for a modern 
Western civilization. Yeah, I think and so. then delivered uh, through technology. Yeah, essentially. And I know that it, there's some people that think that, and I've spoke to a few people like this that uh, they look at mindfulness from a religious point of view, and some mm. people think that now it's been sort of bastardized coming into and being used for the masses. It, it feels less um, genuine, or that you're taking certain parts of mindfulness, and that's not the right thing to do. But I don't. I think is if if it works for you, and if you can take little little lessons from these mindfulness things then I think it's a really good thing to do and just use them yeah so that was a part of the PhD as well yeah as I said that hasn't necessarily come across from what I've read of you publicly um it's been more the motivation and the behavioral change but I guess mindfulness and behavioral change probably can go hand in hand because when you become introspective and you look within so to speak that can help evoke a change on some levels that's exactly it um so Previously, I looked at lots of stuff about motivation. That was my sort of, I did my master's in motivation for exercise back in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all about if you if your motivation is based on your own values, your core values, then you're more likely to stick at something. So, I mean... So, talking, so, so to pause there, what does that mean? So um, if you've got certain values that you... Um, for example, health and yep. family are really big values for a lot of people. Yep. So if you're being physically active or doing any health behavior because you want your want to look after your family or be more connected to your family mm-hmm. you're more likely to stick at exercise for example as opposed to if you're doing it for ego based reasons right so you know summer season everyone wants to well not everyone bikini bodies yeah exactly it's, yeah. it's the worst type of motivation really really powerful actually at first but the drop off um, is quite quick and even if you manage to stick at things like exercise mm-hmm. based on this body image thing, because we've been told what to look like, yeah. you know, it's a society thing. It's a body image, uh, you know, the ideal image and all that sort of stuff. Um, basically, we've been told how, to, how we should look and we're trying to strive for that. Even if you do manage to stick at exercise on, in the long term, it's going to have an impact on your psychological well-being as well. Mm. Because you're always comparing yourself to somebody else. You know, you're never going to attain that perfect body especially when you look at airbrushed models in fitness magazines and Instagram and all that sort of stuff. It's unattainable. So when I talk about, we talk, call it autonomous motivation, which is the motivation that comes from within. Uh, pure autonomous motivation is enjoyment, right? So if you're intrinsically motivated that you're doing something because you purely enjoy it, like, you know, I'm playing football today uh, and I play every week and, it's because I actually enjoy it. It's not because I'm going to get any of the benefits of it apart right. from really enjoying playing football. Um, but that's not always realistic for lots of people, you know. It's mm-hmm. Not like everyone finds exercise enjoyable. So if you don't find it enjoyable, at least got to find the value in it. So that's when it comes down to, yeah, like I said, family values, health values, all these sorts of things. So if your motivation is based on these, it means that you're more likely to stick at things in the long term. So, so people who um, want to lose weight for their wedding day, for example, won't be as successful as parents who want to lose weight to play with their children. I think to get fitter, to be more active for their kids, like there's a yeah, a, it's it's a it's a it's not as a vain kind of motivation. It's it's the what was would you what an like it's internally more. Yeah, it's it, it's intrinsic. intrinsic. Well, autonomous is the the I guess the key phrase because I think it's not that people aren't going to be successful if they come with those. Because a lot of people that I work with, um, that's usually the the main reason they want to come in 
And this is a, I mean, there's a whole industry based on this, right? Health clubs really feed into this idea that of having a beach body. I know yeah. you look at um, adverts for, for lots of health clubs and it's all about these sort of, you know, young uh, mid 20 people that are just bronzed and got six packs and mm -hmm. they're, they're jumping around doing all this sort of stuff. And that's playing on that, that image, you know, trying to get people into, into wanting to exercise, to, to look in that sort that certain way. But, um, a lot of the people that I work with do tend to come in with that idea. Like as in, I want a summer body. Yeah. Right. But then the idea is to try and go around the back door and try and introduce this idea of values and stuff and try and get them to have values as their main motivation. So when you say people you work with, tell us your typical situation. Someone will find you on your Facebook page or something. Yeah. And why will they come to you? Usually it's because they've done these sort of, they've joined a gym in the past or they've, they've started these exercise programs and hasn't been very successful. Mm -hmm. um, there's a really good statistic about how, I mean, it's resolution time, right? That's, I mean, January. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that's um, the reason that I was in the ODT about the, the workshops that I was doing in Dunedin. So I did one in uh, December about how to set up your resolutions and then January about how to stick to them. Um, but one of the things is that Within six months, 50% of people who start these programs of exercise and healthy living will drop off. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and actually, usually, it's, as, the, as the year goes on, that, that figure obviously decreases quite a lot in terms of how many people are actually sticking to it. So usually the people that I work with are people that have tried this again and again and again. You know, the sort of classic yo-yo dieters, yo-yo exercises. I mean, I think you can see by, by uh, visually looking, you're probably talking <laughs> to the person. But that's, that's exactly it. it, it there's, there's a certain set of, uh, I guess, psychological skills that we can, that I can work with people to try and get them to, to have the skills to actually stick to stuff mm -hmm. and the motivation as well. So there's a few parts to that sort of puzzle. The one is getting the motivation in place in the first place, but then also trying to develop, I mean, I try and work with mindfulness as much as possible, try and develop those skills. Yep. But also, I mean, goal setting is a huge thing. Uh, social support, so getting all these things in place that will actually keep people going in the long term rather than just sort of, right, we'll do this for three months. Yeah, we'll lose weight, but then we're going to put it back on because there's that sort of rebound effect afterwards. Yeah. So that's a typical client is someone that's, um, I guess, frustrated with, with previous attempts at trying to stick at things in the long Does term. Does that mean your client is typically a bit older? Like 30s, 40s, 50s rather than 20s? It's funny because this is something, and this is a new business for me, right? This yeah. is a new venture. Like I've never actually... Um, when I was doing the PhD research, I took a group of people and I worked with those. And it was a huge range of people from mm -hmm. like 21, I think it was the youngest, to 65 was the oldest. But now when you're looking at how to develop uh, a business, it's what's your target market? So this is something that, I've, you know, it's all a learning curve for me as well. Yeah. It's going from academia to, to the, the business world. Um, but what does your audience look like? What does your customer look like? And that that is a really key thing. So I think it is, the more I look at it, the more it is going to be like towards from maybe 35 upwards. Yeah, totally. Because yeah. if you're talking about people who have been through the ringer and listen, yeah. I'm someone who was at intermediate school and was at Weight Watchers. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've been there, I've done that. I've got memories. I've got memories of weight when I was a child. One of my, to this day, it sticks in my head. 
obviously, uh, I've, I've you know talked to people and had counseling with that kind of stuff, but it sticks in my head, and it's funny what sticks there. I had a a family. I went and stayed at a family's like like a extended family's house when my parents were overseas, and uh, lovely people love them to bits. Love all the love all the 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 children. I don't want to identify who they are, obviously, but the mother. Um, all, they're all twigs, you right. know, like like twigs, twigs. <laughs> yeah, and I can't remember how it came up, but it was said in front of me, which means I think it was said in front of some people, making a joke that I that two of her sons could fit into one of my pair of shorts. Right. And she made some kind of comment or joke about it and thought it was hilarious and didn't do it with malice and stuff. But that stuck, that that still sticks with me today. Yeah. And we're talking 35 years later, 32, 30 to 35 years later sort of thing. So that, that's been my life. But without, but what I'm saying is I wouldn't have been your client at 20 because at 20 I was a big rugby playing dude and played basketball mm. six days a week and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until I'd kind of done all these things and then my 30s come along and then the kids come along and then there's less time and then my back's packed it in because yep. of my sport and my knees are, are starting to go and I'm like, crumbs, what, what can I do? So when you say 35 up, I think that's exactly right because yeah. they're the guys like me who have either been through a life of it, I think I've been through a life of it, mm. or have certainly, you know, they've been your typical kid, but when they've hit their 20s, they've packed on the freshman 15, as they say, yep. and then they've tried all sorts of things and it hasn't worked, and that's not going to be until they're 35, 40 before they see it. I think that's really true. So you get the, yeah, the young ones, um, the young ones, it's like that program in the, you've watched the young ones? Oh, I was watching, I was showing my kids on YouTube <laughs> that just the other day. Oh, really? I was showing them the first episode, which I can still do almost verbatim, oh, really? the first 10 minutes. Fantastic. Love the young ones. Devastated when Rick Mayle died. Yeah, yeah. Because he was a young guy and also like Adrian Edmondson, like the, the ridiculous bottom series afterwards yeah, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Superb Yes, series. young ones Love fan that. from way back. Had books, had posters, had everything. Yeah. In what fact, my, my, I had a, I had a um, I've still got it at home actually. I've got a, when I was at school, we used to have like cardboard um, folders that were about yay big for your art. Your art folders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then a friend of mean. mine draw Vivian. I was going to say, did you ever have the Vivian gun, hair? Gun to his head. No, I never had the Vivian <laughs> hair. Um, so I had, yeah, no, huge fan. Anyway. Yeah, uh, young ones. So, yeah, I guess the young ones are more resilient, right? Like you said, there's, if they get injured, they can bounce back very quickly. Yeah. Uh, they've got this more energy, less responsibilities. So it's much easier for them to sort of, and more socially connected a lot of the time as well. I think that's one of the things as you get older. Um, I remember reading this study, I mean, this was about 10 years ago, but how the older you get, friendships tend to drop off, you know, the social support side. So even that side, the opportunity is to be physically active and, and be more engaged with life drop off as you get mm. older. So I think that's where the, the key sort of age that comes in, like you said, 35, I think it's a, mm. it's a good age to focus on. And this is something that I'm just learning now, really. Well, that happened, I, I discovered this, I had a, um, I mean, people who know me and who follow this, you know, my blog and stuff know the story. So I won't need to go into it, but I had a marriage breakdown mm. two or three years ago. And I'd only been living in Dunedin for a year, 18 months can't remember the exact timeline. And I realised because I work from home, I run my own business. Yeah. Uh, whereas my then wife was out, you know, uh, working in jobs. I had literally no one around me. Yeah. And I kind of was like, oh my goodness, I don't know anyone in Dunedin. I don't have a support group. I don't have friends down here. But what I found out, a very, very, very dear friend of mine when this all happened came down from Auckland to Dunedin to hang out with me for a bit. 
And he said to me, you know, when you hit your 40s, it happens to everybody. He mm. goes, he goes, if any one of me or my friends had this kind of instance, because you have family and you have your partner and you have your yeah. kids and then you're doing in the weekends kids stuff and then you've got to be home early on Friday because the kids have got sport the next morning. And, yeah. and he said everyone in their 40s, all the men in their 40s have lost the majority of their friends yeah. and anyone who went through that kind of, because I was thinking, why was me? I've got these, I've got no one. But he was basically saying anyone who goes through this in their 40s, a kind of breakup or something, realises how much family has become their be-all and end-all mm. and how their support groups outside that are really limited. It's strange though, right? I mean, is that, I wonder if how long that's been going on in terms of generations. Because when we talk about motivation, the theory that I work from is something called self-determination theory. It's how you develop this autonomous motivation, like I was saying before. And one of the, basically there's, they talk about psychological needs or psychological nutrients that you need. And one of those, the key one, one of the key ones is relatedness. So mm. this idea of reciprocal support from the community. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we know that social support's really important, but it, where do we get that from? You know, if you, is the family if becomes the, the primary source of social support then? But then it becomes more, it's difficult because obviously you hold a certain role in the family, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you're the person that's, you know, the breadwinner or the or looking after this sort of family as, as opposed to being one of a group larger group that are all on a sort of level. So I don't know, it's, it's a strange one. I never really thought about it in too much detail, but I think that whole idea of relatedness is really important. Um, but yeah, as, as you get older, they just tend to, friendship tends to shrink a lot and more responsibilities come into play. And yeah, it's hard, man. It's, it's, it's difficult. Do you think that with this day and age with what well, I know for me personally, I think, you know, we always blame social media, but kind of it is, but with, with it being, you know, our parents and so forth would have gone, oh, I haven't seen such and such in a while. I wonder what they're up to. They give them a call. They yeah. go, hey, we should have a beer. Whereas now if we go, oh, I wonder what such and such is, we jump on Facebook and we're like, oh, okay, that's what they're up to. Cool. Yeah. It's and then we don't have any further connection. So with you them, don't you know? need to connect with we someone to know to. what they're doing. And so therefore, because of that, we're kind of passively keeping tabs on our friends. And because we're passively, we don't need to actively keep tabs. And then one day something happens and we need them to be actively in our lives and they aren't. Yeah. I also wonder... I sometimes think we said, and I'd be interested to get your take on this because you're from the UK and the UK has that real corner pub culture. Mm. Um, but I, th the other thing is when you think you have community around you. So I was involved with the church, let's say late 90s through early 2000s, maybe a bit beyond, around that time, let's say 95 to 2003 sort of mm. thing. And every weekend I was with these people, um, lovely people, so much fun, you know, um, had a greater deal of fun. It was m movies and dancing and pubs and, you know, you know, going away, all that kind of stuff. I left that church and I went to another church and every single one of those people, bar about one or two, disappeared from my life overnight. Really? Yeah. Now, I'm not, I don't, don't, don't get me wrong, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying, I'm not blaming them for that because this is a mutual thing. But all of a sudden, the things I was doing every week with people, and, and this is not an uncommon occurrence, you know, you go to a workplace and it's always Friday afternoon drinks and then you're playing poker on a Saturday night and you leave that workplace, gone. Mm. I wonder what, but, but I'm wondering also, because I was thinking about community as Jace was just talking, I was thinking about in the UK, you know, every night you go down the pub. 
and yeah. you, have a, you have a beer and you've got all these people around you. Is that community, like is that church group or that work group community, or is it much like social welfare, social welfare, social media, a bit false because as soon as you're not in that environment, yeah, all gone, no support. I guess those sorts of places provide a platform to you to find these people that you really connect with, right? So mm. some, I guess there's different levels of friendship. Um, and you find these people in these opportunities, like going to the pub, you might find someone that actually you really do connect with. And then regardless of where you go in life, I mean, I remember working in a call centre when I finished university. Mm-hmm. Not the, the most conducive place to making friends, but I found one guy there and it was a horrendous job, like literally trying to sell credit cards to grannies. It was just horrible. Yikes. But, um, and, you know, you don't get any time to socialise, but we used to go to the pub with a, with a guy there just to talk about how bad the day was. <laughs> and this guy, Andy, he's one of my best mates. He's still back in the UK. But just that really short period, because we just connected, like we went outside of the the sort of the, that working place, that work uh, environment, but that friendship's carried on because we're connected with him. Do you know? So it's, but in terms that, of- That speaks a little bit to me of authenticity as well. Yeah, so yeah, you true. can have a circle of people and shout outs to Andy back in the UK if he's watching or listening. Um, but maybe amongst that group of uh, acquaintances. Yeah. Or, or maybe, I don't know, I'm not going to use the word friends, not that they weren't friends, but uh, situational friends. Yeah. Again, not in a bad way, but because of the situation. Yeah, yeah. If you can find one or two, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, it's true. I think and you remind me of the flight of the Concords skit with Murray and he's got the, that, the graph with the friends. Have you seen that before? I don't. I can't, I've seen all of them, but I can't recall that. It's when, um, and I'm trying to think of it now, but it's it's got a graph and it goes, it's Brett and, uh, what's his name? Uh, Brett Jermaine. Jermaine. Yeah. I don't know, I forget that. Brett and Jermaine and uh, he, he's got this graph where like, they go through acquaintances to friends and then I think Brett does something bad. There it is. So they go from, I don't know what F stands for, but they go up here and then at some point they drop down again because it is something bad. Let me see if I can find the actual video maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I mean, short story, the, the, the short of it is that friends are really important. You've got you to work to find some genuine ones, right? It's, it's, yeah. But that all feeds into the motivation for something. If, you're, if you've got a, like here, for example, Prejudice, mm. mm. we chat to Prejudice because it's just an amazing place to be. I'd like to push this might be it, I think. What's the friendship realm? Well, you've heard of a realm? Mm. Yeah? Yes. Well, this is like a friendship one. A group of people basically getting together, calling each other friends. Look at this. How long is it? Oh, it's, yeah, we can watch it. Hopefully we won't right. get pulled. Okay. Off YouTube for this. It's a friendship graph. Yeah, the video itself Okay, if you have a look along so. here on the x-axis, this represents time passing. And on the y-axis here, this is the different levels of this friends. This is such a good show. Okay. Oh, Starting up what... here with friends, workmates, <laughs> down to colleagues. Right. Underneath that, strangers, yeah. which is pretty much everyone, I've noticed. <laughs> and then enemies. So basically, you guys are here, workmates. And what I want is, is get you up here. Friends and above. That's where Jim is. Who's Jim? Well, Jim's my best friend. Oh. We've never heard of Jim. Well, if you guys were my friends, you'd know who my other friend was. <laughs> Jim. All right, I think it gives us the gist. Yeah. Like geniuses. Um, so I don't know where we're going with that then, but it's, that, that's what I mean. It's just trying to find these 
genuine friendships. And so I use the word authenticity. Mm. So what, I guess what I'm doing, I'm, I'm talking this out as we're talking. The examples I gave of, you know, you're at work or you're at the pub yep. or you're at a church, like as with the example I gave, you know, maybe the thing is even if you do hang out with those people every night, like the pub is a good example in the UK, finding a friend and like a genuine authentic friend in that would be a good result as opposed to thinking these are all my people. Yeah. Like, well, no, these are people at the place, at the same place at the same time but maybe that's not authentic relationships on a more than level one sort of, um, you know, situation. Yeah, exactly. There's a difference between someone that you're friends with just because you've spent time with them versus someone that you're friends with because you share the same values, for example. Yeah. You know, values is always a big thing with friendships as well, right? If you, the people that you tend to connect with more are the people that you share values with, but mm-hmm. also I find the strongest friendships I've got are when you share some core values, but then you have other values that are a little bit different. Because then you, it creates, it's not conflict, but it's something that you can actually work through and discuss, you know? Mm-hmm. It creates those deeper friendships if you've got, if you don't agree on certain things, for example, I think it creates these more genuine friendships. So if you've got things to, for what, not in an aggressive way, but butt heads on yeah. sort of thing, you're saying the core values are the same. Yeah. So you, you would be uh, similar to this person, but you know, there's a few things that you get a bit argy-bargy about at times, you, you disagree on that you, because I guess it's like um, if you just agreed on everything all the time, that sounds quite boring. Mm. That doesn't sound like you go very deep. Whereas yeah. if you've got some things to spark off, to either influence each other on or to accept that you can have people in your circle who have different perspectives. Yeah. I, when you say this, I just think about the ridiculous US um, political system, how basically if you seem to be Democrat or Republican, you can't mix. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. This, so, I heard a podcast about that the other day and how people who, are, who identify as Democrats just refuse to even listen to Republicans' uh, rationale behind their thinking, for mm-hmm. example. So it's this out-group thing that automatically develops. If you've got a some sort of, I guess it's conflict resolution skills essentially. Like if you know how to have a discussion with someone, and actually listen to their perspective, and I think that's a really important form of bonding. It's a really cool bonding way. We seem to be in a society today, though, that it's not okay to disagree. Like you know how you yeah. get to an end of a conversation. Okay, well we'll just agree to disagree. Yeah, that we don't seem to be living in that world anymore. I mean, I have to say it might sound quite. Um, Immature of me, but I love watching clips on YouTube where people are losing it or going off the deep end or, you know, social justice warriors going crazy on or, or, or for whatever yeah. and screaming at people and, you know, their way is the only way and calling people Nazis or, you know, right-wing people calling people leftist loons, that kind of stuff. There doesn't seem to be any way to either come to a compromise or at the very worst in this day and age come to a place where we agree to disagree. Yeah. And... and I remember several years ago I wrote a blog post when I had um, not supported a union at the ports of Auckland because I didn't like how they were doing a strike. Right. And I got attacked by a bunch of um, far-left bloggers talking about being a, you know, a mouthpiece of the right and all this kind of okay, stuff. Yeah, yeah. To which I then wrote a response blog where I said, well, actually, in this instance, it was the NZDI, the teachers' union, I supported them. So I supported this this union and this point because I th- I agreed with their position. I'm not supporting this union this time because I don't. We have to say that logic dictates we can never be 100% right. I mean, no one on the face of the planet would say I'm always right. Yeah. Well. Which means sometimes you're wrong, which means who knows if you're not wrong this time. Yeah. And if we can't admit that sometimes we're wrong and we always think we're right, 
we're in a society now where we can't move to this place where we agree to disagree. I mean, I know I'm not always right, right most of the time, but not always right. Um, so I can't, it's very difficult. If you can, if you can receive that, it then becomes very difficult to go, you know, fuck you, you're wrong. And you've got, because this might be the time I'm wrong. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's having the sort of, uh, I guess the balls to say that I'm wrong sometimes, you know, it's, it's, you, you've got to admit to these sorts of things and, and to move on, that's what you have to do. I think mm. it's really important. Um, but there's lots of pride these days and especially, and, and group affiliation things. Like I said, it's really hard. A really good example of this at the moment in Dunedin is the whole uh, cyclists versus drivers. Mm. Like these two out groups, and I'm going back to physical activity now, but these two out groups that have been formed and it's ridiculous. Like the, the, I've never, I mean, I've lived in Bangkok, right, for a couple of years and I cycle, uh, cycle to work like 10Ks a day. I felt safer cycling in Bangkok than I do here sometimes. Really? Oh, it's ridiculous. Like the, and I, I'm not jumping on the on a soapbox here about cyclists. You know, we're not the the answer. I, I just like to get from place to place, and because I'm, I like physical activity. I mm. just find it the most convenient way. It's cheaper, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but yeah, there's there's a there's a lack of awareness sometimes when you're cycling here, and obviously all the cycleways and all that sort of stuff now. And when you jump on. For example, the Dunedin News. Are you on that? On the yeah, Facebook? yeah, yeah. The the <laughs> the comments on that. It's really it's an interesting sort of, I guess, um, from a social research point of view, seeing these comments that drivers versus cyclists, and there's these two out groups that there's no way that they can meet and compromise. It's just like this this person's wrong because he's a driver. Mm. Like he's he's got this identity as a driver, therefore he's wrong, according to the cyclists and vice versa. So it's it's funny we get stuck in these these identities and we find it really hard to compromise a lot of the times. Yeah. Um, and now you've got to throw lime scooters in there as well. So now you've got drivers, cyclists, and lime scooter riders. Yeah. Have you been on lime scooter? <laughs> I had a play the other day with the kids. Yeah, you know, we went for like five hundred meters up the road and back again. So it, yeah. I mean, they're good. I I jumped on one and it was, it was novelty really, and uh, I had a smile on my face. I was on there with my, with my partner Molly, mm. and we were, we were just going down the road. Um, but I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, that they've got to find a way. And it's the same with e-bikes. I do research with e-bikes at the moment as well. I've got a talk next week on e-bikes and presenting at a conference and people's experiences of using e-bikes in Dunedin, for example. Mm. Um, but I think it's uh, these sorts of things are really good because they make uh, active transport more accessible to lots of people. I mean, e-bikes are a really good example. They're really expensive. Um, but actually, I had a, one participant of mine in a focus group actually did a cost-benefit analysis and worked out that owning an e-bike was cheaper in the long run than owning uh, a car or um, using public transport, for example. Um, but they make them more, they make active transport more accessible to, I've got in like an 80 year old participant mm. who just motors down the road and that's great because otherwise she'll be stuck in a house. On an e-bike? Yeah, yeah. I think the good thing about e-bike, can you Google, um, Jace, can you Google uh, mate, M-A-T-E, e-bike? I found this one the other day. It's pretty sick. Oh, yeah? Um, I think that's what it's called, a mate e-bike. It's got big fat, fat ass tights on it, tires on it. I, have a look. Um, the thing about e-bikes which attract me is I've got no cartilage in my knees from yep. rugby and basketball. You know, it just has happened. Look at this fat thing. Wow. It's fantastic. And um, I think the thing about e-bikes, and as you're saying, the, the older person, push play, don't have any sound, but just has some, has some play in the background. It's dope mm, as this thing. Work. Um, and I, I think the good thing about it is the assist, the assisted ride. Mm. You know, it's um, 
it's just cool. I like it a lot. Well, it's, yeah, and like I said, it had... The, so you still get the exercise, you still get the motion, but you've got the assist. Well, you can choose, can't you, as yeah. well? You can choose oh, to challenge a little bit. Thing. They're from Denmark as well, right? I think Look at said. It. Beautiful. I'm not sure where it's from. Yeah, Denmark have got to go, and I'm in terms of uh, active transport, because their city is Copenhagen, for example, set up to, to have these cycle lanes, and drivers, I don't know if it's Copenhagen, but Amsterdam for sure, mm. the bikes get right of way. Which would not go down well in Dunedin. I know that for a fact. They would lose uh, them. No, no, you know, you know what? Yeah, parts, yeah. Of, parts of Europe, and I remember doing this when I used to do talk back on ZB. I did a bunch of research, and they have like a diminishing responsibility from the size of your vehicle. So, yeah. in other words, if you're in a 20, 20 wheel truck, the car has the right of way. Yeah. If you're in a motorbike, the motorbike has the right of way over the car. If you're in a bike, you basically have the right of way over everybody. Yeah, yeah. Because basically it. they go which I think is kind of smart, actually. They go, if there's an accident here, who needs to be protected? Yeah. And it's the littlest, it's the littlest one, yeah. which but is at why... At the same time, though, like, if you... Obviously, they have to have the right frame of mind, but in New Zealand, you can imagine that what would happen is the cyclists would go, I've got right of way, so yeah. therefore you, Mr. Truck, that's 40 tonnes, have to stop for me. And they go, oh... You know, and they pull out in front of a truck that takes a hundred meters to stop, but they get hit. And yeah. They go, well, that was your fault. Well, I you it's a, yeah, it's a, there is a cultural uh, idea yeah, here, and I think that what I've heard when I did this research, and this is ten years ago, mm. uh, is that you know, in in places that have those kinds of rules, that the 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 twenty wheel trucks they slow down. Yeah. If they're coming up to bikes. Yeah. And because they know that if anything happens, they're in the blame. You know, like how if you hit the back of a car, the one behind always is to blame. Yeah, yeah. And they know, and cars give them a really wide berth because they know if you hit that cyclist, it's massive trouble. Yeah. It's funny though, I think, yeah, cyclists, and I, and I, I drive a car as well. It's not like I'm a, I'm a pure cyclist. I just happen to use it on a regular basis. Um, but the sense of ownership that people have over roads mm. like car owners think that they own the roads cyclists think that no no they own the roads and it's just this weird sort of ownership it's a very it's a very very kiwi thing i think that she's reflected in a lot of our road rage stats and stuff the right. kiwis are very very they basically you know the, the the bubble you have around you as a person when you're yeah. down the street extends to a, a car and a bike so your bubble becomes infinitely bigger when you get into a bike well the thing about driving a car as well you're already at level eight you know, like of stress and everything. Because even really people true. who drive comfortably, and like I love driving. I always used to think if I, my dream job, and I'm, when I say used to be, I'm not talking about as a kid, but I used to love the idea of um, riding the ride-on lawnmowers that cut <laughs> like the parks and stuff, just because I love to drive and I love to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if you think about being in a car, you're, you're already at level, you're already at eight. Yeah. Because, you, I mean, I know when I'm driving, I'm looking 200 metres ahead. I'm looking, I'm searching, I'm scanning. So I'm already heightened massively. Yeah. So if something goes, and 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 I'm not a road rage person, but I can imagine if for some people, if something goes, and it just tweaks into that nine or 10, yes. bang. Yeah, yeah. Whereas on a bike, maybe you're more relaxed and you're more chilled. You're not so worried about it. Maybe. But certainly, you know, you're driving a two-ton uh, death trap. You're already heightened to seven or eight out of ten so yeah. it doesn't take much yeah i yeah. love seeing the videos of you know cyclists who get cut off coming along and just like you know smacking the wing mirror off a car or yeah you know things like that there's some just great road rage videos out there that's why that's why i use it with my by, by by great do you mean they're interesting as opposed to you approve of them uh no yeah i just like that i just <laughs> i like it when it goes in both directions you know okay. sometimes it's fun you know and they're they're good good drivers and good cyclists and are bad drivers and bad cyclists yeah, you know sure. it's just having a bit of respect for, for everyone who's on the road and it's just also I mean 
this is not like a, we're not sermonizing here, but I just go chill. Yeah. You know, it's like if someone does something technically illegal and they cut me off or they drive slow, it's like just, yeah. I, li- I like those ones where you get an aggressive driver behind you and they blast around you and they take off and you just kind of casually pull up to them at the next lights and just look at them and, you know, they, haven't got they any blast further. off and you just pull up to them <laughs> yeah. at the next lights. It's like, oh. I've, I've been both sides of that. <laughs> <laughs> where yeah. were we? What did we start talking about? Riding bikes. Uh, we were talking about in groups and out groups. Yeah, so we're talking about tribes, aren't we? Yeah. The yeah. car tribe versus the bike tribe. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And just tribes in general, like trying to find, yeah, trying to find that right tribe in terms of, and how it influences motivation. I think that's... And I think tribes always put you in that, I'm always right. I mean, no matter what happens when you're watching the rugby as a all black, yeah. the, the the Australian player is always in the wrong. Oh, yeah. yeah no yeah. matter what. It's a blink of They're view. They're always in the wrong. Yeah. And that's a, that's a social bias, right? It's a cognitive bias because you, you see what you want to see. And yeah. That's, a, that's just like a phenomenon that's been going for, you know, forever. That's what it's evolved with us, but it's... This idea that we only pay attention to the things that fulfil our belief system. Mm. So, and that's essentially what things, you know, we, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So how does one study motivation? I mean, that's a really interesting idea. I, I, the reason I ask you as well is because I feel like on some levels the least motivated person in the world. Mm. This conversation with people recently, not, not it was well before knowing you were going to come on, but I find that if there's things that I'm passionate about, this is an example, this podcast. Yep. I mean, I was up till one in the morning emailing future guests and that kind of stuff. And, you know, Tiki Tane, if you're listening, we want you <laughs> in a few weeks' time. <laughs> um, Nora Jones, if you're listening. <laughs> um, but there's other things that I don't, that I'm completely unmotivated about. Now, I've had a hell of a year. You know, my mum passed away a few months ago. Mm-hmm. I've been through a, a rough stage with wrapping up a marriage, which actually is, a, a, it's the actual wrapping up is fine, but there's been some incredibly stressful moments and stuff. You know, I've had to find access to extra serotonin and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even though I've always been a big dude, I've probably put on another 15 kilos sort of thing. And it's been a hell of a time, but I, at the moment, feel like I can't get motivated to to get back to a healthy lifestyle. Um. Is it fear that there's stages in the life where you just kind of go, oh, just can't do this right now? Or is that dangerous in a motivated kind of way that that might turn into 10 years? Well, <laughs> I think there's, there, there are certain things that sap energy, right? As you know, like the cognitive resources and, and mental, just mental energy. And when you have big things happen in your life, then it's normal to, to feel like there's not much energy to, to do new things or to change behaviours and stuff because you're trying to focus on the things or get through, work through the things that you've they've just gone on in your life. So I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge. Um, in terms of whether that's a long-term thing, I guess that comes down to sometimes it's just a flick of a switch, mm. I think. And we've got a, in fact, yeah, I'm doing this podcast next week about um, immersion immersion versus sort of drip drip changes so the drip drip is where you just make these small changes on a daily basis for example yeah the like frog in the pot type thing yeah exactly so creating like small habits and i mean at the moment i'm working on doing like a, a routine in the morning that sets me up for the day so it just means doing like you know i'll do uh, a couple of exercises and i'll do a 10 minute meditation but creating these really small changes of the day that will make a difference jordan peterson talks about make your bed yeah, yeah, it's a it's a military military yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. and that's a, it's funny because I, I was I, I was working as a personal trainer last year. This is after PhD, and I just needed something to get my teeth into for a mm. while. And 
uh, one of my clients, it was one of my clients t- said to me, you know, the best habit you can do is make it better in the morning. Mm. Hadn't even thought about it before. And now, you know, it's, 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 a, it's something that really stuck to me. So my client taught me that, that aspect of making your bed. And it does, it just that sort of kickstarts the day if, you, if, you've, mm. if you've done that one small good thing. I think it's also, well, I remember there was like a, I don't know if it was, it was a TED talk even, but it was kind of one of those motivational things where it was, you know, you're saying, if you make your bed in the morning, one, you know, get you moving, get you making things, mm-hmm. you've accomplished something for the day. And if even if you don't have any success that day, you've accomplished that. Mm-hmm. And then if you have one hell of a day and nothing goes right, at least you come home to a well-made bed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My one of those little things is I've stopped biting my nails. Yeah. It's ridiculous. That doesn't sound like it's anything. But I'm, How did you do I, that? I could, I could I've that. been a nail biter forever. Yeah. And I often notice that... I feel my mental health is better when I'm not biting my nails. Mm. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the connection is. I don't or is know it the other way around? Yeah, it's I, like I, don't know, yeah. I don't know whether it's just when I'm – because I have to stop myself doing this. And I still find myself kind of doing this occasionally, yeah. you know, but I kind of – I don't bite them. And so for the past couple of months, maybe not even that past month, I've been cutting my nails rather than biting my nails. And I'm like a, I'm so bad, I would bite my nails and then it would go too deep and I'd rip it out and it would bleed, that kind of bite, I, nail yeah, biter. Yeah. I've done that before as well, man. It's I, I bite my nails as well and it's a terrible, terrible habit to do. But. Yeah, so so my make your bed in the morning has been stop biting your nails. Yeah. And, and that's about a month, I'm about a month, I'm a month on the wagon. It's on the wagon? I'm the nail biting wagon. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because you, you talk about these habits and and- there's a, the habit that you're trying to stop. So stopping bad habits, which is very different to trying to start a new habit. Mm. So for example, starting a new habit of uh, exercising on a daily basis or moving on a daily basis compared to stop smoking or stop drinking. Mm-hmm. There's one way you're trying to refrain from doing something and there's one way you're trying to activate yourself to do something. Mm-hmm. So it's like that sort of, yeah, doing something versus stopping. They're two very different uh, things to do. Yeah, that's interesting. No, no, I'm just, let me take that in. So you're saying stopping something is very different from doing something. Yeah. Yeah, that's true actually for me because stopping something I found a lot easier than doing. Does yeah. that mean, is that anything? Is that a particular kind of personality or something? No, no, no. Maybe it's some research for, for the future. I don't know. It's, I, it's, um, you know, like, I'm, you know, when you're talking about exercise, but me personally, I'm just going to jump in with my personal stuff at the moment. Um, <laughs> this about, is, I don't know this going to turn into a counseling yeah, session. Okay, counseling. No, I'm just saying like about a month ago, um, I hopped on the scale post Christmas, and, you mm. know, and and I saw a number on those scales that was the biggest number I'd seen ever, and I was like, no, it was a nice round number, which was nice too. It was a nice round <laughs> number, you know, it was with a zero on the end, and I thought, no, that is the heaviest I ever, ever, ever want to be, and so I'm not motivated enough to exercise, but I figured I could, the very least I can do is I can stop doing something relatively easily, except biting my nails. Um, and so I was like, right, I'm just going to eat less. Yeah. Because eating less is literally doing less, and I can do less quite easily. Um, <laughs> so I just stopped. I started counting calories, which I swore I'd never do. And and I've been doing that for a month now. And it's you know it's tough when you want, you know you want to eat ice cream in the middle of the night on a hot day, but um, it's. Doing nothing. So, do you think doing nothing? Well, I'm doing. Yeah, I'm doing less effectively. I reckon yeah. stopping something feels easier than starting something, because starting something can involve a huge change to your whole life. Yeah. So, like starting, let's say we're talking about movement and exercise. Starting a bike ride a day might actually need you to change ten other things in your day. Yeah. Whereas stopping doing something just involves stopping one thing. 
Yeah. So I, re- I mean, I don't know the research, or I'm interested in your thoughts, but it feels to me like, you know, like so. So this is well, I won't do something biting my teeth, my my thing that's stupid, but yeah, to to introduce something will have potentially a flow-on effect. Stopping something feels like it's quite absolute. Yeah, I think uh, what I liked about Jason's was the fact that it was one small change, right? Mm. So I think that's one of the – when people try and make changes, they often try and take on these wholesale changes. You know, and they're not just going to start exercising. They're also going to eat better and they're going to sleep better and they're going to – and then it just becomes this huge real – it's a task trying mm. to change it. We've only got a limited amount of willpower in a day. So if we're trying to assign all this willpower to lots of different things and different habits, it's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, that's why I was conscious. Actually, that's it was a conscious decision when I was like, right, I want to lose weight, and I was like, I know there's a thousand things I can do. Yeah, I can start exercising. I can go for a daily walk. Yep. I can do this. I can do that. Um, but I was like, you know what? The easiest thing to do is is just I just go right at the moment. I'm eating two of these things. I'll eat one of those yep. things. And um, and I'll lose weight, and I have, and it was a really, I think. Also, I think for me personally, the motivation was every time I was like go to the pantry and would be looking and go, "Can I have a snack?" I would just say to myself that number. That just I'd just say that number in my head. Right. So you had a visualization, of like a like yeah. A, it was almost, I guess almost a mindfulness in a way. I guess, but I was just saying yeah. I'd say that number to myself and I'd be like, no. It's that, and I think there's a tendency to talk about mindful eating. I had a friend who did research in mindful eating and the fact that we eat stuff when we're bored or eat stuff when we're not really thinking. And often we don't even give our chance, the, our body a chance to digest the stuff before we keep consuming. So sometimes we can just overeat just by default almost. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think there's, there's some research there as well, I think, in terms of mindful eating stuff. It's interesting, though, just going back a little bit with what Pat was saying with biting his nails, because I bite my nails as well, and I looked into it a while back, and I'm, I think this is possibly the reason, it might be the reason Pat was doing a tour and with the anxiety, is that our caveman brain, when our... Back in the cave, if we were eating, we were safe. We only, the caveman would only eat when he was safe. And so because of that, our brain is programmed that if you're eating, you're safe. And so therefore, if you're mm. anxious and you're eating something, how how much and how much danger can you be? So therefore, biting your nails is kind of the same right. as eating. And so if you're eating, then you'll help. It kind of reduces your anxiety levels because your brain's like, oh, I'm eating. I must be safe. Yeah, interesting. It's also interesting what you said about uh, you know how much willpower we've got. I feel the same about resilience. Mm. Like I'm I'm better today than I was three months ago, but I kind of lost all my resilience. I was going through a stage where it just the stress levels were through the roof, and you know for various things, including my mum passing, and I didn't have any resilience. So if anything came into my life, it completely knocked me. Yeah. You know, I could, I could, I could live and I could function. And I used to describe it like um, water tanks. You know, um, we had a batch in Northland for a while. Family, when I say we, and had a water tank. And the water tank goes down, 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 down. But there's like an overflow. But then when the overflow goes down, there ain't nothing left. Yeah. And resilience to me kind of feels like that. And so it took me time to fill the overflow tank before I could even start filling the main tank back up again. And I feel like now at the moment my main tank is filling back up, mm-hmm. but it's still not full. Yep. So I can take it maybe a hit or two now, but at one stage there I, co- I literally couldn't take a hit. If I took a hit, like I remember standing at the sink, <laughs> I remember standing at the sink doing the dishes and just stopping in the middle and going, I can't finish these. Right. I just yeah. can't. I just I have to stop. I'm doing the dishes. I'm at home by myself. There's no one there. 
Like yeah. I think the kids were with their mum and I was doing the dishes and I just went, I, can't, I just can't finish these and just putting them down and leaving them alone. I'm not like that now, but I remember those moments and when you don't have resilience and you don't have whether you want to call resilience willpower or whether they're, they're two sides of a coin or sisters in a family or something, um, yeah, I think that can affect all sorts of stuff to do, especially motivation and behavioural change as well. Yeah, I think for sure you talk about resilience and it's something that I've been looking at more and more actually the last few months, um, looking at papers around resilience, but it's a really hard thing to come back to and it's something that comes back with time. Mm. But there's also you know certain things that you can do to build up resilience as well. Uh, which is what I'm getting more interested in at the moment. But yeah, it all comes from the same tank. Like you said, it's it's really hard to make change in your life if you're just struggling to even finish the dishes, right? Mm. <laughs> like it's the last thing on your mind. And it's yeah. it's not and it's it's important to normalize this as well because it's people when people are in that situation, sometimes they can think like there's something wrong with me. Mm. But actually it's just part of human nature that yeah. sometimes we have these peaks and troughs and sometimes you not haven't got the energy or the resilience to be able to do these things. Mm. Just have some self-compassion, man. I think it's really important to, to normalise these experiences and just know, you know, classic mindfulness phrase, this too shall pass and it will pass with time. Yeah. Just be able to get through it. But And then, again, that's where sometimes you need some social support to come pull you up. You know, that's really important, again, community. Yeah, yeah totally. And I've got some real special people in my life now. So yeah. it's, it's very different today than it was a year ago. But... Yes, it's interesting. And I'm also intrigued in this because I feel like I've, I've spent the last six years, this isn't a counselling session, by the way. <laughs> I just, the thing about what we do here in the Department of Conversation is we just talk openly and honestly. Yeah, yeah. And what I've decided sure. for me is I have to be all in. Yeah. And if I'm not all in, there's no point. Yeah. So that's why I tell my stories. No, no, I completely understand. I so for the past six years, I've been on a journey. And I started when I got, um, when I've realised and connected with some addiction issues. And it then flowed into when I got diagnosed as dyslexic, mm-hmm. um, which was when I was 40. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was when I got diagnosed as dyslexic. And that then went through a personal journey of discovery for me. And then that kind of culminated a couple of years ago when my then wife came out as a lesbian. Uh, and, and then I guess you could now put in that as well, my mum died. So this has been the six-year journey for me. Mm. And I felt like during that journey, all I've been able to do is, well, not so much the first part of it because I was okay, but I was, I was figuring shit out. Um, but certainly the last couple of years, I've just been hanging on. And so now I'm at the stage where I feel like, you know, things like physical health and stuff is becoming more important to me. I feel more motivated about it. But because I'm the, the classic example of the yo-yo, uh, the person who was 12 years old, with all the 47-year-old women literally at Weight Watchers, yeah. um, I'm like, what do you do? Where do you go? Mm. So I know you've got a football game to get to in about a half hour and we don't want to block that for you. I know it's flowing, isn't it? I can, uh, I'm all right. Across <laughs> time. So tell me something. I don't care if you speak to me or if you speak to someone like me or just in theory, right? Mm-hmm. I know you've delivered lectures and stuff on how to be motivated, how to keep motivated. Give us some tips or some tools. Like for anyone watching, don't necessarily think just about me, but I've given you a rundown of my situation. Like what, uh, if you were to synopsize and, you know, I don't care how long you take, three to 10 minutes to 20 minutes, you do whatever you want. But what people need to do or think about, um, I don't know, do you do like a 10 steps to 
keep your thing. Well, you know what I mean? Like what, what, what is a, give us some tools or some tips or something that you can uh, give us, those, those of us who are thinking, right, how do we move into the next stage of our life? How do we get motivated? How do we stay motivated? Yeah. So the floor is yours. I'm, I'll, I, could, I could go away and just leave it to you if you want, but, you know, go for it. Tell us some stuff. One of the first things to do is to work out what you actually want to change and where you are. So, I mean, I'm, I'm specialising in physical activity, right? So I'll go, I'll talk to that, I guess. Because I look at other health behaviours, but I think I'm going to stick to what I, I really know, which sure. is, is exercise and physical activity. So one of the first things is that to, to monitor what you're doing. So I love to give people, do you know the recommendations for physical activity, how much you should be doing a week? Uh, well, I mean, I, what I've heard is it's 30, 30 minutes a day. Yeah, so 150 minutes a week. Right. And I think there's this... Can you can we just pause? I'm not going to try and interrupt yeah. you all the time, but describe physical activity. Physical activity... Because 30 minutes a day, what does that mean? It's well, Physical activity is any activity that's going in, to increase your energy expenditure. So well, even, I, I'm using an app to track my fitness at the moment. I entered mowing the lawns the other day yep. and I was like, five, I put in, because it, it was quite long, it took me an hour, I put in an hour and I was staggered at the amount of calories that said I burned. I burned like 500 calories just mowing the lawns. So is it, would it be easy to say that what raises your normal heart rate? Is there a way to, to tangibly measure that? Yeah, so heart rate, uh, there's certain descriptions to it. So you got like, you get moderate. This is all moderate physical activity. Yep. You can do vigorous, uh, which, you know, I'm playing football soon and that's that's going to be vigorous activity. So you got to do 75 minutes of vigorous or 150 minutes of moderate. Moderate is anything where your sort of heart rate's going up. You might start to sweat, but you're not sweating buckets. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something like brisk walking, for example, is moderate. A really good thing, one of my um, previous clients... She used to be in a circus. Oh, wow. And she uh, was a juggler. And there's a Harvard University have got this great compendium of all these physical activities that you can do. And they rate things in terms of, um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but by moderate and vigorous, essentially. How many met minutes, which is uh, how, many min- how many metabolic units you're burning per. So if we're sitting down here now, it's one, mm. like it's at rest. If we stand up and start walking, we might be burning twice as many calories. Mm-hmm. So that's two. If we start running real quick, you might be burning eight as many, eight times as many calories. That's eight. So it's eight mets. Basically, um, moderate is like around six mets. It turns out that juggling is a moderate physical activity. <laughs> oh, cool. So you could do 150 minutes of juggling. I can juggle. And just stand, as long as you're standing up juggling, like you're getting your core workout and it's actually, you know, I, I've never. Wow. I'm, yeah, yeah. I so, like juggling. Then go for it, man. I reckon juggle. So that's one of the things I love to do. Uh, talk about physical activities. Actually, give the first thing I do is give people a challenge. Uh, 150 minutes in the first week uh, of finding a moderate physical activity they can do and just fill up that 150 minutes with something they really enjoy. Because if they can tap into something that they enjoy doing, then that's pretty much the job done. You know, if you can get someone to enjoy do 150 minutes of juggling, then, then go for it. I think that's, I think that's one of my big problems at the moment because I, in my younger days, when I was a young one, um, basketball. Yeah. I played basketball two, three, four hours a day mm. and actually doing exercise with something you enjoy is the best way to do it. Whereas my knees are now shot. My back's pretty bad. Yeah. You know, it feels like I can't do those things that I once did for fun so it has to be sort of just something for exercise. And I think that's something you kind of, a lot of people kind of go, oh. Like my sister, for example, um, she goes to the gym, but she loves it. She's got a community there. She's got friends there. And it really helps her serotonin levels go through yeah. the roof sort of thing. Um, 
I am a, you know, I like lifting heavy weights. That's what I've always done. But now because of my broken body, I can't lift heavy weights. Mm. So it's like I now need to, I don't know what that thing is, that fun thing. For me, I like, I don't know what that fun thing is. So I'm now thinking, oh, I mow the lawns for an hour. I almost think the opposite of what you're saying, which probably isn't smart, which is I'd rather find things I have to do and be able to tick it off than find things I want to do to be able to not notice it. Yeah. And like I said, the, the enjoyment is obviously that's the ideal scenario right that's the sort of gold standard of motivation if you can find something you enjoy i need an e-bike yeah yeah get an e-bike yeah, yeah. right into down that was one of the themes that came up all the time was it is bringing joy back to people's lives you know there's like i said this 80 year old woman who's flying down north road absolutely buzzing because she's on an e-bike and yeah anyway that's that's another thing so yeah that's that's the ideal i think there's i, I like i like to get people curious about their movement again because I think there's been this sort of, this huge dissociation. We evolved to move, right? Like there's a natural reward system in movement that now we get sort of conditioned from like four years old to sit down and, and concentrate at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just sort of, this this curiosity around movement just gets beaten, not physically, out of us. And I think um, that's what I try and do is get people back to being curious about movement. What does it feel like? And like ask them to take notes on their thoughts leading up to movement and what happened during movement, what did you enjoy about it and how do you feel afterwards? So I think that's really important. It's that mindfulness aspect mm. as well. Um, you know, try and think about it and, and be curious about movement again. But like you said, it's not always that possible to find these activities that you do enjoy. So again, talking about the core values, um, one of the first things I do is I've got a big list of potential values that you could have and get them to choose five of those. So there's, I mean, I'm trying to think of different examples on there now. There's things like compassion's one, family, community, all these sort of, you know, hundreds of values that you could choose from. Mm-hmm. Get them to choose five of those that really speak to them, you know, as individuals, because it's amazing how the, the variety. You think that lots of people have shared values, but the amount of variety that you have, that, that people have in their own value systems is just amazing. And create that, create a sort of mission statement. So you put verbs in front of them. So act with compassion, uh, find community, those sorts of things. And then try and connect that. What we do is work to connect. It is a counselling session, essentially. It's physical mm-hmm. activity counselling. So you're working to connect um, these values to, to the reasons for being physically active. And I think that's a really important thing because as soon as you make those connections with values, it seems like you're working, you, every time you've been physically active, you're working towards something that's bigger than you, you know, or something that's really important to you as a person. So values work is what I really, really work towards. But it's amazing how much people don't um, schedule as well. I think scheduling is really important and planning the week. When you're uh, trying to develop new habits, it, you know, habits are fantastic, but they take a little bit of effort to develop in the first place. So mm-hmm. just scheduling and planning the week ahead is really important. So really geeky thing to do. I used to do on a, on a Sunday night. I'd have a meeting with self. I actually put this in my Google calendar. Every- Did you say meeting with self? Yeah, with me. A meeting with myself. Did you have like two cups of coffee that you put out? One for you and one for I self? Didn't actually. Yeah. I actually. Next time. Um, so I'd, I'd just sit there on a Sunday night, 8 p.m. every week, uh, and I'd just have a list of things that I've done the previous week, uh, things that have gone right, things that have gone wrong, which again, I think is really important. Mm. This, I mean, we're in life, right? So there's trial and error involved in it all the time. I think it's really important to recognise and normalise things that we fail at as, as much as we do in terms of success. Um, and then think about the things that I need to do for the rest of the week. So that'll be things like planning food and 
try and think of uh, if I wanted to do physical activity, make sure I've got all the equipment in place and, and know when I'm going to do that and be realistic with that. So that's another thing I do is the scheduling side of things. Mm-hmm. And then goal setting, which, you know, it, it's a bit, it's almost become a bit of a cliche in a lot of domains now, but it's such a really, it, it's the biggest predictor of success in physical activity. What you, what goals have you got? You know, the smart goal setting stuff. Have mm-hmm. you heard that before? Just explain it. So uh, whenever you've got a goal, it should be smart. So specific. So just saying that you want to be healthy isn't really a goal, but saying that you're going to run or walk 30 minutes a day, every other day is very specific, right? So does that, is that why it's SMART? Yeah, that's the S of SMART. Right. So specific. it's an acronym, specific. Gotcha. Uh, measurable. So if you're not measuring this movement towards a goal, then it's not really, how will you know that you've attained it? So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk for 30 minutes, measurable. Yeah. So Jason, for example, is measuring his physical activity and calories. So that's a really measurable thing to yep. do. It's really good. Uh, accountability. Weighing myself every day and counting every time I go down by a little bit. I'm yeah, like, exactly. I, I just don't count the times it goes up. <laughs> accountability. Can you be accountable to like to an app, or do you think you need people as well? Well, I prefer people. Okay. Certain people work in different ways. Yeah. There's uh, there's some good apps out there now. There's one where that gamifies uh, accountability, so you can actually assign uh, a referee. Um, it's called Stick. It's actually developed by people at Harvard, which is a complete coincidence. But um, Stick with the with two Ks, S T I C K K, and they have this thing where you can actually gamble on yourself as well. So you can put money on the line. Um, you know, wow. if, if that's the the only source of motivation for you, then uh, you know it's not it's not a great uh, it's not a great source of motivation. But and if you lose, what it goes to a charity or something? Yeah, exactly. I wonder if the TAB would do that. I know they'll pretty much take games <laughs> and give you a thousand to one if that's I can a make really it under good point. There's a there's a there's a collaboration here somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, but accountability because you can assign referees, so you can get a friend to sign up, and they'll they'll say you know have you done this thing before. And they'll also send you automated emails as well to say, can you submit a report on if you, you finished this? My One of mine, I've actually used this app this year, was to climb something every week. Oh. I want to climb. I want to get back into rock climbing. I used to do it a long time ago. Um, and that's I'll get this report sent every week saying, you know, have you, have you climbed something this week? I say, yeah, tick. And it goes back and I feel good. Um, so accountability is really good. Uh, realistic. It talks about taking on huge changes. Uh it's making sure that our goals are within reach. If they're not mm-hmm. within reach, then our confidence takes a knock. So we call them sort of Goldilocks goals. Right. Things that aren't too much, too high or too, too far out of reach. Um, also, if they're still, if they're too easy, then we get over them real quickly as well. Uh, and then the last one is timed. So having some sort of time frame, including these, these goals. So obviously sometimes time doesn't really apply because it can be a continuous thing but even a time to review the goals and work out how they're doing because evaluating and reevaluating is really important as well. So does that mean the measurable one probably shouldn't be time if you've got a specific time one? Like, so if you're going to walk, so rather than maybe 30 minutes, you're walking for 5Ks. Yeah, it could be. And then the time, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, but for a lot of the time, like the, the, the time Where stuff, was that picture, Jay? Bring that picture up with the smart The smart on. goals. Yeah, there we go. See, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time-based. That's a slightly different one there, the one that I use. But the attainable one, I've changed to accountability because I, I think right. I've brought that into bringing that sense of social support and accountability. I think it's yeah. really important. Um, relevant, I guess, here would be personal values, but this is a slightly different one to the one that I use. Yeah. But then you can also add an E and R on the end of that. So you make them smart, which is great, but E and R is evaluate and reevaluate. 
So you're coming back to the goals on a regular basis. Just because you make goals, it doesn't mean they're going to be set for life. Yeah. So that's where I try and review them every month, for example, go back and say, are these goals working for me? Are they out of reach? Um, and just being a bit self-compassionate and, and making sure that I'm at least moving towards something. All know? right. So just if people are listening and they're watching and they want to do it again, just go through it again. S is? Specific. M is? Measurable. A. Accountable. R. Realistic. T. Timed. I was thinking, how do, how do I spell smart? And then <laughs> evaluate and reevaluate. And and that wouldn't be necessarily weekly. That might be monthly or quarterly or... Yeah, quarterly. Well, I guess you could do whatever one. you want, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah. As long as you... That's part of the time thing as well. It's setting time for reviews. I think that's really important. And these are really practical tools because you can do this, you know, you can do it quite easily and you can, as long as you got, you can probably get worksheets offline. I've got some worksheets that I use with people that I've developed and I think it's really important. And it's good to talk these things through somebody else as well because, you know, you could be trying to set a goal that's really unrealistic without really thinking about it. But then if you've got someone who who knows you a little bit, like, are you actually going to be able to do that? Yeah. But that's also uh, embracing failure a little bit and knowing that it's a trial and error. So it's not going to be perfect the first time. Yeah, I'm doing that. I've got I've got two goals. I've got a goal that I know I can obtain um, if I work at it. And I've got a goal I'd love to obtain, but I'm not going to beat myself up if I don't. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you've got these short-term immediate goals. You've got sort of medium-term goals and you've got these long-term goals, which can be really idealistic, but... You know, if you shoot for the moon, land amongst the stars and all that sort of stuff, I think it's really important. Yeah, basically, like one goal is, one, you know, like to not, not go into numbers, um, but one goal is basically be as light as I was sort of about 10 years ago, I think it was, when I was like, you mm. know, and the other one is to be lightest I've been as an adult, basically, which I know is achievable, but it's just a long-term goal. Yeah, yeah. And these things get harder as well as you get older because our metabolism slows down as well, mm. right? So that's, the, that's another important thing. Um, yeah, there's lots of research now on how the... the because the metabolism uh, slows down, especially when you hit 30 and above, you've got to work harder to attain these goals than you would. And we talked about this at 20s, you know, mm. it's much easier for someone to drop a few pounds at 20 than it is when you get older. So that that's, it's a, it's, it's one of those life challenges, you know, nothing's uh, completely easy in life. It's just one of those things, but that's hopefully where I come in is actually trying to help people to, to attain these goals and give them some accountability as well, because so as I'm hearing you talk, I'm kind of thinking you you sound like you you're setting yourself up to sort of be a personal coach, a coach, a motivator, um, but also with the PhD behind you with some real strategies and tools to help people get there. Yeah, what of a big thing, a big sort of bugbear of mine is I didn't mean to start a PhD. It just happened. Um, I. I I don't like particularly the, the the gap between research and actually seeing people change as mm. a benefit of that research. So I think now I'm trying to move into the practitioner role because, you know, you can do, you can come up with this great idea in research and then it might take six months to get, get the planning started because you've got other things to do. Take another six months to get a grant application written at best. And then the grant comes in another year later and then five years later, you've got this project and you've got all this data and you've worked with these people. But the best thing about the practitioner stuff that I'm doing now is like I can, I can see people change right there and mm. then. And that's really powerful to me. And that's one of my core values is to actually see instant change in people. So even just sitting there and talking to someone in one session, like you can see uh, the confidence come back a bit. Obviously, it's always work in progress. It's never finished. 
Um, but it's it, it's that idea that I can actually make changes to a community or make changes to a, an individual straight away as opposed to waiting for grant applications to come through. And I, that's, that's really important for me. Well, I guess you are Dunedin-based. Yeah. Do you, yeah. do you have an ambition to stretch wider? Like if having, do, do you need to be with a person face-to-face to be a client? Can you do things over phone, over the internet? Yeah, I think that's that's something that I'm trying to work on at the moment. Like I said, it, I'm moving from academia to business and it's mm. it's all a learning curve and I'm, that's what I'm working on. Um, in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at developing video content and things like that. Uh, but at the moment, it's all one-to-one face, you know, face-to-face and uh, using Skype and Zoom and things like that, which is, it's, it's great now because I can kind of reach out to more people. Yep. But I think there's, it's funny when you're trying to describe what I am, that's something I've been really struggling to do. Is <laughs> what I don't know, you know, you talk about life coaches and stuff like this, and but you can do a life coach course in you know over the course of a weekend nowadays. Yeah, you pay like a few grand. Well, you're for a doctor. It. That that I think that helps with you. I mean, the other thing I do is marketing and advertising. Yeah, and I can see that you're different from a life coach. That you've got the the qualifications behind you. I mean, you've written your own you know thesis. Uh, to get your doctor, your own doctorate to to, to talk about, yeah, to give you to give you the your own research to back up what you're doing as well, which is pretty cool. Yeah, there's credibility there. Yeah, but it's always difficult to come up with a with a title of something, and I've gone through about twelve different titles, I think, in terms of what I actually do. Um, but that's something I need to to develop. But where there. you do it is a group called the Mensana. Mensana? Yeah, is that Mensana? Mensana movement. Do you know Mensana Incorporate Sano? You heard no. that before? So, so, well, how, how is that related to Mensa? Mensa is the high IQ. Is that, that, that's Latin, same isn't root it? word. So it's for like healthy mind, healthy body or something? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Mensa is mind. Right, okay. Mensana incorporates sano is a healthy mind and a healthy body, like Jason said. So the idea is that it's behavior change, but done in a good way, as opposed to those yo yo dieting things. Mm. I'm also big into positive psychology. So that how. The benefits of physical activity for psychological health as well as physical health. So doing it in a in a way that actually is fulfilling rather than just sort of, yeah, like I said, that if your reasons for most um, reasons for exercise are ego based, you end up with this sort of uh, anxiety issues or, or poor psychological well being. So the idea is Mensana movement is you. It's movement because it's obviously physical movement, but getting to positive psychology through physical movement as well and behaviour change. So yeah, it's it's uh, trying to encompass a lot of things, and I guess that's going to be honed as a as I go along. It's pretty cool. So people can get in touch with you, in touch with you, or find out more about you. Scroll that up a bit, Jace, because they've got um, you've got links, you've got little tips and tools on your page and stuff as well. Yeah. So yeah. So people can just go there and find out more about you, and and find out more about. I guess people can just like and subscribe to there as well, which also means if they are outside of uh, Dunedin or New Zealand. Yeah. Then yeah. they can still get, they can see your writings, and they can still get tips from there and stuff as well. You can also you can also read the um, the the meaning of the name in Latin beforehand, so you can sound smart. I was I was going <laughs> to say that, but I thought I thought you were going to call me out. No, there, I, so I, I will just I just thought that I'd leave that till the podcast was finished, and I was going to go, "You dick, you just read that before," <laughs> but I let you get away Absolutely. with it. Absolutely, Matt Jenkins, Doctor Matt Jenkins. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, cheers. Well, I guess you're we're part of the same building, so it wasn't we much are. wasn't very far for you to come. And talk about community, yeah. Petri, Petri dish has been amazing for yeah. me at least. It's yeah. such a cool little place to come and yeah, yeah. I love I love this place. Yeah. Yep. And they've been good for us as well. I mean, for people who don't know, we we always put them up at the start of the um podcast. It's yeah. 
they're a shared office space in Dunedin, and I guess let's plug them as well. If you got, if you're looking for a space in Dunedin, or if you're outside of Dunedin and you're traveling to Dunedin, they do hot desks and stuff as well. Yeah, like yeah, if, you're in, if you're in town for a few days and you're looking for a space to to work out of, just Google Petri Dish Dunedin, and you will um you will be welcomed on board as people have been for the last few years. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So off to football now. Yeah, I've got a cycle across town playing down at the stadium. So. 12 minutes. Is that futsal or what is that? Futsal. Yep. Uh, yeah. Well, can I just ask this question? Yeah. What the hell is futsal? I see it advertised everywhere. Is that like small ball soccer, indoor soccer I thought that was? Yeah, essentially it's indoor Where soccer. Where do you do it at the stadium then? Is there an indoor gym there? Uh, Unipol, you know, the, the, right. the university gym. So I thought like, you were going to be on the turf. No. You and Ben Smith were out there. I played on the turf last night. I right. did play last night. So I still played nine aside, but... Uh, futsal is essentially is it size a normal ball is a size five yeah and then a futsal is a size four okay. so it's slightly smaller and it's in a gym yeah smaller goal yep smaller gotcha. goal I've and it bounces it. less as well it's a different yeah. game it's, it's it's pretty quick right I've got to try and keep up with the 20 year olds now and how many <laughs> how many minutes of movement is that going to give you for your, for your week uh, it'll be an hour and a half today and you're riding there you're and I'm riding there alright yeah Matt thanks for coming in yeah cheers find Pat. out more about Matt and what he does at the Men's Center Movement and uh What's next week, Jace? Oh, David Clark. Health Minister. Yeah. Hey, you're on topic. There we go. David Clark. Oh, well. We've had uh, medicinal marijuana last week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mindfulness and uh, motivational health this week. And next week we'll bash David Clark with all of us. We won't bash you, David Clark. We won't him. I'm <laughs> I'll be keen to hear he'll, that. He'll, he'll, he'll cancel. So, no, we won't do that. We won't do that. <laughs> well, he won't cancel. He's lovely. His people will cancel. Yeah, yeah. So, next week is David Clark. Thank you, mate. Yeah, cheers, Pat. Cheers, Jace. All right, there we go. I don't know. Uh, it's funny because people give you all these answers and these um, ways of doing things and way to achieve your goals. And part of me still kind of goes, God, I still can't do that though. But anyway, Dr. Mac Jenkins, he's the guy to talk to if you want to um, figure out how to stay motivated and stay on track. And uh, the Ben Sana movement is pretty easy to find on Facebook. So next week we have booked in uh, Dr. David Clark. Minister of Health, also happens to be a local MP here in Dunedin. Um, we have got some other people lined up in the not-too-distant future. Uh, we have Midge Marsden coming in. Uh, we are talking to other people. Actually, we shouldn't release names of who we're talking to, but we're trying to get several people in for you who are going to be interesting here in Dunedin. We've got ID Fashion Week coming up. We've got the Fringe Festival coming up. So we're talking to a bunch of people about coming and sharing their stories with us because you know what we like to do? We like to have conversations. We don't do interviews here in the Department of Conversation. Uh, until next week, we'll see you around. Hooroo. Hey,